empowered by the Constitution, strengthened by the Bill of Rights, the American citizen was bestowed with the power and responsibility of civic engagement. Today, your voice is needed now more than ever, yet barriers stand in the way. How to start, where to begin, it can be confusing and overwhelming. We're here to help you take that leap, breaking down those barriers, providing you with the tools and knowledge to take on civics undaunted. Today, it's my esteemed honor to welcome Claire Roberts to the show. Claire is the former Vice President of Risk and Compliance for Marquetta Incorporated, former Provincial Vice President and Lifetime Achievement Award winner for the International Fraternity of Delta Sigma Pi, and has been elected to serve as a District Governor for Rotary District 5160 for the 2023 to 2024 year. I've known Claire for about 15 years, and I found her to be an inspirational leader who truly embodies the principles of servant leadership. She once told me that one of the key aspects of leadership is knowing when to step aside and let those you've mentioned mentored take your spot. Claire, those words have stuck with me for years now, and I'm so grateful to have you here today. Welcome to Civics Undaunted. Thanks, Patrick. It's great to be with you. So those, I, I think it was at a speech you gave, I think, when you were Western PVP. And then we had a conversation afterwards where you said about knowing that you had to step aside and not run again. And I just wanted to kind of kick off learning a little bit more about you and how your style of leadership came to be where you always focused on, you know, engaging those underneath you, mentoring them and making sure that the organization you work for were set up for success. You know, I think that um, I think my underlying passion is to leave, you know, and philosophy is to leave the organization better than you found it. So whether it be improving policies or um, structure or organization, but one of the keys to that is developing great leaders and going out and searching um, and not being afraid to invite people. Uh, in one group I belong, we called it identify and invite. So you go out and you talk to a broad amount of people. You find people who you believe have the capability and the desire and the passion to be leaders, even if they don't have the skills right now. And then you kind of convince them or cajole them into stepping into a role that maybe they're not even so sure that they really are ready for. And then you mentor them. Um, I always said about my teams professionally and in volunteer roles that my goal was that I needed them more than they needed me. And that didn't mean that they didn't need me because I wasn't the leader or maybe since I was in financial services, had the signing authority or the approval authority or could you know be the board member who could make the vote. But I needed them and they were my feet on the ground. They were the ones that were doing the work on a day-to-day -day basis. And therefore, by taking the philosophy that I wanted them to be able to function independently of me meant that we could be a great team. I've been, to I've been told by others, um, both in the volunteer and professional world, you know, sometimes your, your teams are a little challenging, Claire. And I'm said, always said to that, well, why don't I want them to be challenging? I want them to think for themselves. 
I want them to be able to make decisions. I want them to grow. Nothing makes me more excited than sitting, you know, being able to, uh, you know, let somebody know that they've been promoted to be assistant vice president or vice president or in the fraternity that they were elected to be the regional vice president or the provincial vice president. And they joined the organization when I was in a leadership position and I was able to help that organization thrive and make it something that was attractive to them so that they wanted to stay engaged. So I think that's kind of my driving philosophy and how I've always approached it. And part of that is, is knowing when to get out of the way. Because if you develop this great bench and then you just sit there, your, your, bench is gonna, your bench is gonna get tired and your bench is gonna leave. They're gonna go find some other organization that they wanna belong to and uh, didn't wanna see that happen. So as I said, sometimes you need to know when it's time to get out of the way and to move on, one, to give myself more opportunities for growth and learning, but also to give those who have contributed and been successful on my teams the opportunity for growth and advancement as well. I love that that identify and invite phrase really, really strikes me. So thank you for kind of going into the detail there. And it makes me think, you know, one of the things we're trying to do here with the podcast is get people more engaged in, you know, civics writ large, which I know is a much bigger ask than organizational involvement, right? But I was wondering, you know, taking that framing of like, identify and invite, how does that sort of translate for you into, you know, civic engagement? And how can that maybe someone who's listened, we can take it and apply it to getting involved locally? You know, sometimes I think identify and invite means you identify who's missing. Who's missing from the conversation? Is your group all old? Is your group all too too entrenched? When's the last time you added a new member? When's the last time somebody, you know, came in and, you know, had a new idea? Um, you know, the the one of the worst things that can happen is, you know, somebody puts up a new no a new idea and someone says, no, we've never done it that way. Or can you explain to me why we do it this way? Well, we've always done it this way. That just means you haven't given it any thought. You haven't challenged yourself. You know, I graduated from college in 1980. Think about the technology in 1980 versus the technology in 2022. And I spent the last, you know, 15 or 20 years of my professional career working in technology companies. If all I knew was what I knew on the day I graduated from college, uh uh-uh, there's no way I'd be anywhere. I certainly wouldn't have a cell phone or a smartphone or an iPad or know what to do. So you have to continue, and that same philosophy applies to organizations. You have to continue to challenge yourself. Look for who's missing. And missing can be different demographics, different cultures, different voices. It can be also different skill sets. People who, do you have a technology person? Do you have somebody who's comfortable with numbers? Do you have somebody who's creative and artistic? Um, Do you have younger people who are going to look at things a totally different way than the way that, you know, someone in their 30s or 40s are going to look at something? So you just bring that to the table and then you want to build your group up or your team up to include all those different voices so that you can start to look at problems and challenges and opportunities in a different way than you would if you sat there just with a, you know, homogenous group of people. Yeah. 
I I know we uh, in Hamden we had that experience with getting onto the Democratic Town Committee. There is when a bunch of us got involved four or five years ago. It was the same group of people had been there for thirty years, and it wasn't so much that they identified what they were missing so much as we identified that we were missing from them and then got involved. So it's always better. Self-identification is always better, Mm -hmm. you know, because if you identify and go out and engage, then you can continue to grow as people and as an, as a group and a team and an organization rather than to having it pushed upon you. Because when it's pushed upon, you know, it's always better to be there because I think it takes a different, it, you know, different skills in terms of how you build up a new team when you add new members, if you've decided to do it yourself versus having people come up and challenge you that, you know, our voice is missing or our presence is missing. Mm-hmm. And those teams can be hard, much harder to integrate. Mm. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And integration is, is the tough part of public service. <laughs> it's also engagement. You know, wouldn't, don't you feel more engaged if somebody comes out to you and says, hey, Patrick, you know, I don't know you very well, but I think you've got some skills from what I see. I think you've got some skills that we might be able to use. Let's have a conversation about what you think about, you know, give me your opinions. How do you think things are going? What do you think we're missing? That's much more engaging than you having to come, than waiting, sitting here and waiting for you to come and talk to me. Mm -hmm. Because one, you may not do it. Two, you may get frustrated and go find something else to do, um, you know, and you lose a lot of talent if you don't. And once people get onto the team, do we listen to them or do we just say, oh, no, that's the new kid or the new guy or the new gal or the new person? And how do we, you know, and every voice is important. Yep, that's exactly how I got roped into being treasurer for multiple political campaigns. <laughs> they came up to me and said, I think you can do this. And that's what I did. <laughs> so I, I feel that big time. You know, one of the things about being involved and knowing you through Delta Sigma Pi is that you were on the forefront of being the I'm not sure if it was the very first or that first round in general of female membership being allowed into the organization as a result of Representative Patsy Mink's work with Title IX. So I wanted to like kind of touch on what was that experience like of being the first-hand beneficiary of the civic engagement of people going on and advocating to get equal inclusion uh, for people of all genders? You know, I think there's a lot of um, nostalgia. You know, there's a lot of legend and myth and lore um, that organizations went calmly and peacefully and thought this was the greatest thing that ever happened to them. Um, I'm going to tell you, having been there in the fraternity and I was initiated into the fraternity about two years after, um, you know, after it was, it was four years. It, well, it was about three and a half years after the, 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 fr- the fraternity decided to go to allow women, but it was slow. 
it wasn't like one day, um, you know, we had, you know, a hundred or so chapters in those days. And it wasn't like, you know, the, the switch flipped and it was like, suddenly everybody had women. Um, when I joined my group, my pledge class, my group of, of new initiates, we had five women in my group. And this was the spring of 1979. Um, that was double the number of women that had ever been initiated in, into the, into the chapter that I, that I joined. Um, and so from that perspective, there were women around, but then after I graduated and I went into leadership, there were fewer women in leadership in those days. And, you know, it was, but it was very representative of the way that the business community was in some respects as well, because I went into, um, after a short stint in retail, I went into financial services and it was very much the fact that women had certain roles, you know, we were expected to have certain jobs and it was not, um, you know, it was not necessarily it was not equal and you had to fight if you wanted to do it. And the fraternity was to a certain degree, the same way I wanted to be, I knew that I could do it and I had mentors. So I had a mentor, the regional vice president at the time um, said, Hey, I want you to come and be with um, our district director. And I said, well, I don't think I can do that. And he said, yes, you can Claire, you have all the skills that we're looking for. And then when he was done being regional um, director, he said, you could be regional director. And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, yes, you can. And so I had a mentor, somebody who encouraged me. And I think that's where the idea of, you know, of the way that my leadership style came from, in part from the fact that I had somebody who encouraged me when to do things that I didn't think I could do myself and then continue to move ahead. Um, also to be able to stand up and talk about why, why, why not allow women? If you look at the diversity and the, uh, you know, the evolution of an organization like Delta Sigma Pi, at one point it was started by a group of men who wanted to start it because they were excluded, because they were excluded from other organizations. And then through a lot of different changes and people I don't think were paying attention or maybe they were doing it for lots of different reasons, suddenly it got exclusive. And so, at you know, and then people woke up and said, but wait, that wasn't why we were founded. So by sticking to our values and understanding what our values are, I'm going to tell you there was a little bit of stubbornness, but I was convinced and I still am convinced that the voices, be they male, female, you know, gender, gender differences, cultural differences, ethnic differences, um, skin color differences, um, the organ, you know, organization pulls from all different kinds of business students, um, interests, skills, everything. The differences makes us richer. And I was definitely a beneficiary of the opportunity to do this. Um, and I always wanted to make the most of it for everybody else that came behind me and to make sure that the organization embraced it and was able to, um, not just do it because they were supposed to, but be do, do it because it was the best thing for the organization. 
Love that. What well, one of the you you mentioned about the different voices and everything. Did you foster that or was it in existence where you could pluck from to help shape and guide and get the organization to to look forward in that manner? Um it depended on where you were. Um in some cases some groups and some schools and some chapters embraced it right away. They were great. They're like, how help to help us help help us be better. Some people fought it tooth and nail, and they were like, no, there's no way we're going to let women into our fraternity. We don't want to be that way. Um, and as you started to move up through the ranks, or as I started to move up through the ranks, it was a little lonely sometimes because you'd look around and you wouldn't see people. You wouldn't see other women. Um, you would see a lot, you know, you would see men and you would see successful men who had, who were, you know, looked upon in, um, with respect because of what they'd done for the organization. Now, many of them did embrace the idea that of women and women in leadership and, but some of them didn't. And some of them, um, some of them were very anti that. And, um, and you could tell who was supportive and who wasn't supportive. So I always leaned on those that were supportive and in a respectful way, tried to stand up to the ones who weren't um, and not, and not let them stop the fraternity from moving forward Um, because it was the reality and they needed to understand if, you know, if you looked at the business world in the 60s or the 70s, it looks very different than what it looks like now. And so if, but, so if the fraternity didn't evolve, it, um, it, as a business fraternity, if it, that's our values and that's what we profess to say we are, as a business fraternity who looks to all different kinds of business people, um, if you don't allow a, a diverse group of, of individuals in, then you won't have a representative organization and or you know a group that's representative of today's business world. Amen to that. So one of the things that I'm working on for a different episode is the thought of activism and engage and civic engagement within an organization. And you touched on it with how in you pledge in. You said 1979, doubling the size of that chapter's female membership from two or three to now would have been eight, right? And then got into leadership and still had to fight for years more to keep pushing and growing that cause. And I think it's it's a fascinating thing to explore is, you know, how things go from the public view to then the, for lack of a better, the the corporate or private realm of fighting for the same thing. Cause you have to fight through so many years of, you know, we've always done it that way. So I'll tell you one of the key points of, I think revelation so in 1999, I ran for Western. That was the first time I ran for Western Provincial Vice President. Um, I ran against 
the incumbents. Um, for lots of different reasons, I decided to run. And there were, at that point, there were four provinces and there were campaigns going on in each of the provinces for provincial vice president. And when we, the four individuals that got elected, the four of us, and I do not even remember why, we decided that we needed to go out onto the floor and go up to a microphone and the four of us were going to say something. I don't remember even what we were going to say. But the four of us got up as a group to say it and stood there at the microphone together and you could watch the faces of the leadership of the fraternity realize that in 1999, the four provincial vice presidents who had just been elected were all women. And traditionally, that's where the grand president would come from, the next national president would come from. So you could see that in the faces of some of the people that were sitting up on that dais, as they looked out at the four of us and said, oh no, look at them, they're all women. Or if, you, if they wanted to be pejorative, we were all girls. But there we were. Now, to, now you know, um, a couple of years later, two of those women ran for national president of the fraternity and one was elected. And so we had our first national um, president who was a, a woman. But so even then, as late as 1999, so it takes, one thing is, is that leadership takes a long time to develop and cultivate. So one of the things that if you want to cultivate a different kind of leadership than what you have, then you've got to actively work on it. So one of the things as National Professional Development Chair that we're looking at for the fraternity now is how do we enhance our volunteer leadership training? Because in the case of, in the, case of the fraternity, we, um, current leaders recruit, identify and invite, recruit, encourage different leaders in the future. If we want our leadership to look different, and it's going to take a while, we're not going to suddenly wake up one day, it's not wave a magic wand, we're going to have to work on this. But if we want our leadership to look different and to be representative of the collegiate members that we serve and the collegiate chapters that we serve, we need to start educating our current volunteer leaders on how to effectively recruit people who look different than we do. So that, and we need to start talking about that. So we're just starting that conversation now, um, probably arriving late to the party, but at least we're talking about it in terms of how do we move that conversation That's forward. That's fantastic. I love hearing that. And I do, I do appreciate that in one way, shape or form, you know, the fight never quits and you, you keep pushing for improvement. And, you know, I was going to touch on your time as organizational development, but you just touch on the professional development side. It seems like it's, it's one and the same in terms of always looking at the well being of the whole, no matter what lens you're looking on it through, you know, so like, how do you, how do you factor that into making those long-term decisions or is it more just a you make a decision in the moment not knowing what the long-term result may be 
I think you have to have a vision. I think you have to have a place to go to. Um, I think some people, you know, in this instant gratification world that we live in, sometimes it's hard to say, well, I'm looking at something um, that won't happen in, um, in my lifetime. And um, there is a, a prayer from um, Bishop Oscar Romero that, and I won't go into the whole thing, but it talks about the fact that we are, we are not master builders, we are workers, and that we are the stewards of a future that is, does not belong to us. So even if I'm not gonna see those results right away, even if I, you know, might be, it might take, you know, five, 10 years to get there, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do the work. We have to start. And if we want it to look different, um, then we have to start. So for example, in Rotary, um, the district, the gentleman that will be district governor after me for 2425 and I have been having conversations about how do we engage a younger people in leadership in our district. So he and I have three um, initiatives that we're going to start um, in the year that I serve as governor. So that'll be, in, and it's not going to start until July 1st of 2023, but we're talking about how to implement those. So, and the goal is to, to look ahead and say, what are the barriers and what, who's missing? What are the barriers? In our case, we know who's missing, but what are the barriers that prevent younger people from, or different people from participating? Younger professionals who have a full-time job, who don't have 40 hours a week to spend on Rotary, um, working professionals, um, parents with kids, don't have every weekend to give, can't be gone all the time. So how do we make this job different and evolve it into such a way that we can give opportunities to different kinds of people and make it more accessible to others? So you have to have a vision, um, but you have to be willing to take baby steps to get to that vision. And you have to realize that it's not mm -hmm. going to happen overnight. I love, I love that. I love the, the essence of it. And I love how, you know, in my mind, you know, I'm, I'm a one horse, uh, road. That's not the reference anyway. Um, focusing on the civic engagement and how the point of this podcast is to get people more involved because there's people who are unhappy with where things are at and they want it to change, but they don't know how. And I, I feel that you just broke it down so good about the fact that we need to work on it today for something that we're not going to necessarily see and change it over time. And, however we can get involved because life is busy and you know, how someone at 22 can show up to do this is different than someone who's 42 with a family compared to somebody who's, you know, 58 and the kids are out of college. Right. And I think that's, that's a really great point. And I think rotary is, is some, I don't know a ton about rotary outside of that. It is a community focused organization and you touched on it and I just could you tell a little bit about what Rotary does for the community writ large I know it's it's an international organization correct 
Yeah, so Rotary um, is a leadership organization focused primarily, and the the basic, the, the core unit of Rotary is a Rotary Club. So in your community where you work or and or live, there is a Rotary Club. Those Rotary Clubs bring business or, you know, um, civic leaders from around the community together. Um, they give them an ability to work on projects either in your community. We also have a large international presence where we partner with other Rotary Clubs in other countries. There are Rotary Clubs in about 200 and, uh, 210 plus countries now. Um, and so to work together to improve, you know, to bring business leaders and community leaders together to work on projects that will um, enhance, enhance our communities and our world. Uh, one of the big initiatives that Rotary has worked on since the 80s is polio eradication. Um, so polio um, was a big, is a big thing in the world. But now after working on it for, this is another example of, it's not gonna necessarily happen shortly. We've been working on this since, you know, the late, 80, late 80s, early 90s. And only now are we starting to see that there've only been a couple of cases of wild polio in the, in the world this year. So it's been a 30 plus year project, and but, pol but Rotary is sticking with it. We also have, we have seven areas of focus that include, you know, sanitation and water and education and maternal and child health. Um, a lot of focus, many projects are focused on education, either in our communities, local communities or globally, because education is the key, um, you know, for a lot of uh, young women, especially in certain parts of the world, uh, it's very hard for them to get an education. They don't have opportunities, um, you know, because if you live in a community where you have to walk, you know, you have to walk five miles each day, every day to get a jar of water for your family, because that's the only, that's the closest place the fresh water is, then you don't get to go to school. And to try to bring these, bring projects that have, um, you know, based on the needs of the various communities to bring them to those communities. In our own local communities, you know, we do things like work with, um, work with foster youth who are aging out of the foster, um, the foster system and how, what's next for them because they've gone from a somewhat chaotic life in many chance, in many, um, in many cases, but, but at least it's had a little bit of structure. And now they're at the end of their time, they're 18 years old, and now they're gonna you know, graduate out. And what kind of support system are they gonna have? We do a project um, for, home, for to help senior citizens who are trying to stay in their homes. It's called Home Team. And we go and do small projects around their house, change light bulbs, put batteries in smoke detectors, you know, help them with the screen door, or, you know, put on a new screen door or a lock stuck. But that enables them safety and they are able to be safe and stay in their homes. So there's lots of different projects. But again, it's community leaders, civic leaders who are coming together in your community and beyond to be able to do things. A lot of the same values that we looked at, um, you know, that, that caused you and me to join Delta, Delta Sigma Pi when we were in college. It's that same kind of, um, of work and that same kind of thought and effort 
um, on a more global on a more global front. That's really cool. I I didn't know that they had that many different uh, ions in the fire with with the local community. That's thank you for kind of shedding some light on that. And I feel like it gives a ready made structure for people who want to jump in to to your point about barriers where they can join Rotary and then be able to give back to, you know, there's five or six different causes you listed off that could be interested to some people. Yeah. For younger people, there's Rotaract, which is, um, which can either be community-based or college-based um, clubs where um, you can come together with, um, you know, and that tends to appeal more to people in their twenties or maybe early thirties because there's, you know, there's less structure. The meetings are more flexible. And then as you, you know, mature through your career and your, you know, your life, you can move into Rotary and join a more traditional Rotary club, but the work is the same. And the work is all about giving back to our communities, both, both uh, locally and globally. Awesome. I feel that this is going to be a fairly redundant question, but just in case there's an aspect we missed, you know, what is a lesson or lessons you've learned about public service through Rotor? Because it sounds like you're much more boots on the ground involved doing projects and stuff in the communities you live in, I assume. But Well, I think that if you're going to complain about something, you have to be willing to do something about it. Um, I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, I could sit back and and complain and moan about you know, the situation in the world. And, but unless I'm willing to do something about it, I, I kind of feel like all I'm doing is I want to leave it better than I found it. So I join organizations or stay involved in organizations because I can make, I think I can make a difference. And I think it gives me the opportunity to say, to be positive and to be using my energy proactively rather than reactively where, um, you know, and not that everything's perfect all the time, but to use that, um, use my energy to do good things. Everything isn't going to be a, a, a raving success, but to be able to use it, use the experiences that I can share with other people and what's worked, what hasn't worked. If it, if we try something, if it's a good, if it seems like a good idea and we try it, and it didn't work quite the way we hoped, we can tweak it and try it again. Um, or if it really didn't work, we could decide to move on to something else. But again, back to the basic reason why I've gotten involved, why I got involved in Rotary was that I was looking for a place to use my energy for good. Mm -hmm. A poor success is better than a thousand posts on Facebook, right? Complaining. So... I really like that. Well, the, you know, even if, you know, and, you know, you see all these memes on Facebook and, and other social media, but, you know, even a failure is, if you know, is it a failure or is it a learning opportunity? Yeah. I, you know, if you see it as a learning opportunity, oh, oh we tried that and it didn't work. Whoops. Well, let's go try something else again. Um, then, you know, you can just keep moving forward. Exactly. I mean, there's uh, secondhand knowledge and then, first-hand experience with this is you know I, I was listening to a podcast with amanda Lippman from run for something who said most first-time candidates 
lose their bid for office. You know, and then in Hamden, we were trying to change the financial outcomes of the town and that we had a candidate run for mayor and primary the mayor and lost basically 60-40. And everybody who was in power said, oh, you know, they lost so big, blah, blah, blah. And us, we looked and said 40% of the town said we don't like where things are going. Long term, that's a bad sign, right? And then two years later, she's now the mayor of that town. So I, I, I think that's a great point of even failures aren't failures when you're doing work for the better good. Yeah. So that's, that's really, I'm going to look into my local Rotary Club now. I don't know if I have time to get involved, but I definitely want to at least know the Rotary people because they're doing good work. They are. Um, one thing I didn't know about you that I learned in preparing for this interview is that you were actually a planning commissioner in, I believe, your old hometown. And I actually spent a couple of years as a technology commissioner in Hamden, which was definitely a unique experience of volunteering. I just want to like ask you about what was that experience like? What made you decide to become a commissioner? And then perhaps just given a little bit of information about what a commissioner is for those who may not know. Sure. In Orinda, California, which is where I was a planning commissioner, um, I've been involved as a local volunteer. Uh, there's a community association called the Orinda Association. I'd served on the board, as had my husband, Mark. We'd both served as president. There's lots of community involvement and lots of different things that um, were being worked on. Uh, Orinda is a suburb of San Francisco and a fairly affluent suburb of San Francisco. And there was a lot of things going on and people were trying to revitalize the downtown and like with a lot of other places, there's talks about needing to have more housing and of course, you know, focus on affordable housing. And because Orinda does not ha is not really a affordable place to live for a lot of people. Uh, we have um, BART, which is Bay Area Rapid Transit Trains come through Orinda. So there's a BART station in Orinda. So there were certain requirements that were going on as well as an attempt to look at revitalizing the business community and the downtown. And there were a whole lot of people that can tell you exactly why we should never do any of these things. They just wanted to tell you, no, we can't do that. That'll ruin the charm of our community. They have this term called semi-rural. We're semi-rural. Uh -huh. I don't know that I can say that any community that is 25 or 20 miles east of San Francisco can be called semi-rural. But so I decided that I was tired. Again, I don't get to complain if I'm not going to do anything about it. So it was, um, there were, and they were looking for, Commission, they were looking for various committee members and other things in town. So I decided I was going to go and volunteer to, to be on a more formal city entity. So I went down to the city hall and I got the little booklet about all the different opportunities and I read through them and there were a bunch of committees and they didn't really seem like they did much, to be honest with you. Um, my husband, Mark, was on the Traffic Safety Advisory Council, so I couldn't be on that. 
So, so I couldn't be on that one. So, but you know, just looking for opportunities and, um, there was planning commission and I thought, well, hmm. and there's again, back to all these things about, you know, we need to build some housing. We need to look at the downtown. Let's figure out how we can do something, you know, because doing nothing doesn't seem like a really good option. So I went down and I filled out my volunteer interest form. And the way that it works in Orinda is I filled out a volunteer interest form and I took it down to the city clerk. Well, because of all the things I volunteered for and all the other roles I'd had, I knew the city clerk and I handed in my form. And she said to me, well, you know, Claire, um, planning commission isn't really an entry level type of place. You usually have to do some other things before you get to be on the planning commission. To which I said, well, you know, I've been on the board of the um, and president of the Orinda Association. I think I've done other things. So, you know, if I don't get it, that's fine. But I'm just going to be part of I, I want to say I want to be part of the solution. And I went. So next thing I knew, I got called and I got invited to an interview um, with the city council. And so I walked into the city council. Well, okay, again, I've done a lot of volunteer things, including one of my volunteer jobs was to be the parade starter for the 4th of July parade in Orinda. It's kind of like, uh, it's a small town kind of parade. It's really fun. It's got, you know, dogs and cats and uh, old cars and stuff. And so one of the, um, one of the city councilmen is, you know, Claire, I haven't seen you since the last time you were yelling at me at the beginning of the 4th of July parade. And I said, that was because you weren't following the rules because you were throwing candy out of your car when you weren't supposed to throw candy for safety reasons. So I interviewed and um, had this interview. Uh, my professional background was risk management and compliance. So I could talk about, you know, professionally what I did, what I did was, you know, read regulations and figure out how to implement them and apply them appropriately to, you know, to whatever business my company, the companies that I worked for were trying to do. So I said, so I think I can extract that, you know, I have opportunities, um, you know, I've had experience working in the community. So as I was leaving the interview, the, again, the city clerk says to me, okay, Claire, well, what else would you be willing, what else would you want to do if, if you don't get picked for this? Implying that, again, she's telling me not an entry level position. So um, I'm like, well, I don't know what else I want to do. Let's just see how this plays out. So the next day she had to call me and say that the, um, that the city council had selected me as one of the um, planning commissioners. Um, in the planning commission um, is made up of some people who have developer or building contracting type experience, and then a couple of community at-large members. So I was one of those community at-large members. Um, so it was an appointed position. Um, what I learned through my time on uh, in, as a commissioner is that um, one, I'm not afraid to make a decision. I'm not afraid to make a decision that might be overturned because the way it works in Orinda is there's certain things that the staff can handle. You know, the, the planning office can handle certain things. If the planning office, if the planning um, director and his, his or her staff make a decision and the, um, the resident doesn't like the decision, it can be appealed to the planning commission. Um, then there are certain things that are outside of the scope of, um, of authority of the, of the staff. And so that goes directly to the planning commission. So I read a lot, you know, read about the rules, read about, you know, what was going to happen. And then I would go to meetings and talk to, you know, listen and talk and we would make decisions. A lot of people 
didn't want to do that. Even the commissioners, they would, they came in with their, I don't, I want to be no growth. Well, okay, that's really good, but that's not the law. Um, I happened to be a planning commissioner when um, cannabis cultivation became legal in California. They're like, oh no, we're going to prohibit that in, in Arenda. Well, no, can't really do that. We live in California and there are restrictions for what, where you can do it. And we can put some restrictions in about how many plants you can have, but we can't say that you can't do it at all. And so um, I did a three-year term. I learned a lot. Um, and I decided not to re-up for a second three-year term, mostly because of frustration with the other people on the commission and feeling that they didn't want to have the conversation. They just would make up their mind and they didn't want to, to do that. So, you know, they didn't want to have a conversation and dialogue and figure out solutions. It was easier for them to just say no. And, um, and so I didn't feel like that was something where I was going to be able to make a difference. It took a lot of time. Uh, because you had, depending on how many matters were in front of the commission, you had to read all the information. Um, you had to go and, you know, look at the site, depending on what they were trying to do. So it was very time consuming, but I tried, but I did it for three years and, um, I was offered a, a second term, which I d declined to, to um, re-up for. But I think that it was a good experience for me in the sense that it gave me a different opportunity looking at public life in a different way. It, it's volunteer, but volunteer in a government structure. One of the things they do not tell you about volunteering on boards and commissions is that it can take time and will make you learn weird things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's great. And, I loved you saying, I'm not afraid to make a decision that will be overturned. I think that's that's huge in terms of you need to be willing to do something, which has been a theme of pretty much every aspect of your leadership. And I know the answer to this question of what gives you the motivation to keep going is probably going to be something around the lines of, if you want, if you're going to complain about something, you need to be able to do something. But is there any anything else that keeps you going back and back and back to these Herculean type efforts? Because be it Rotary, Delta Sig, Planning Commission, it all seems to be stuff that takes years of, of visioning out and you keep going back for more. I think it's a matter of, I think it's, it's leaving it better than you found it. Mm -hmm. And, um, that, you know, be the change you want to see, you know, if, if, if nobody, if nobody ever, if we just sit back and say, let somebody else do it. And we don't like the way that it's going, then we have no one to blame, but ourselves. Now, to your point, if I try and it doesn't work, that doesn't mean I was wrong. Now, in some cases, I was wrong because it wasn't the right time or it wasn't the right thing. 
But it doesn't always mean that. Maybe it just means it's not the right time. The example you used about the woman that ran for um, for office and and the first time she didn't she wasn't successful, but two years later she was. It wasn't the time, but at least it probably started a conversation. And the sixty percent who said, "Well, only forty percent," I'm I'm just amazed by that. What do you mean only forty percent? You know, forty percent is almost fifty percent. That's almost half the people in town said. No, this isn't good. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of um, it's a matter of just I, I I guess maybe I'm stubborn and I <laughs> I I want to do I want to do good. I think I have the ability to you know engage, listen, gather information, do my own research if I need to, talk to people, ask questions. I am a firm believer that the only question, the only stupid question, is the one I didn't ask. So I'm not afraid to not be the smartest person in the room and I'll ask questions if I have to, to get to the information. And then you make a decision based on the best information that you have at the time. And if that information changes down the road, you get more information, then it's okay. Now I have different information so we can make a different decision Mm -hmm. or we tried something and it didn't work. Okay, now I have more information. So let's go back and let's learn from that process and be able to be um, successful. And I think that a lot of people don't think that way. Um, And so I think that if I can help encourage people and mentor people to take that kind of approach to problem solving and organizational development and moving our, our communities ahead, then I think if we had a lot more people that thought that way, that we wouldn't, we'd be in a very different place than where we are now. A thousand percent agree. And I think a big part of that is exactly what you said is when you get new information, you can make new decisions. Yeah. Right. And, and don't be beholden to the past decision you make because it might've been right in the time, but it's not right now. Or I may not have had all the information I thought I did, but then new information becomes available and you need to do something different. Mm-hmm. And there's no shame in that. It, you know, the shame is just sitting back with my opinions and not listening or asking questions or researching. That's where, that's to me where the shame is. The shame is just looking at something at face value and saying, oh, no, 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 that's not going to work. Um, the shame isn't. Oh, I don't understand. Can you help me with that? And then based on the information you have, making a decision, even if week or couple weeks or a month or a year later, you have different information and you can say, oh, okay, now that we know that. And I think, again, some of that comes from my professional career because I would make, you know, we would put policies and processes in place and then the law would change and the law would change. And so we needed to change, not because the old way was wrong, but because now the environment that we were trying to comply with was different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel a lot of people, especially what I've noticed from being, you know, a part-time keyboard warrior with, with keeping people updated is people are afraid to make a statement and then pull back from because they're going to be ashamed of like, Oh, I was wrong about, you know, this important issue in the town or, 
you know, government or what have you. And it, there's no shame in having a point of view that changes when you get new information. Uh, right. I can't, I can't stress that enough personally. Um, so I want to thank you so much for coming to the show. I've absolutely loved our conversation and, and what we've talked about. And I just want to ask you one last question for anybody out there who is thinking about getting involved. What is one piece of advice you would tell them to help them get started, you know, today? I think if you don't know what your passion is, go out and do some research. There's lots of websites. There's lots of ways to go out. Um, what annoys you? You know, that could be a way to find a passion. Mm. Um, is, oh, you know, you don't like something that's in your community or you see a need that isn't being met. Um, you don't know what kind of organization you want to join. Um, go out and research them. Um, and don't be afraid to... Don't be afraid to, to, to not find it on the first try. Um, you know, for example, you know, I got to be a planning commissioner because I went down thinking, huh, I wonder what I can get involved in. And I read through the whole book and did some research and talked to some people and figured out that that seemed to be the best fit for me and, and my skills and my interests and my passion. Um, I got involved in Rotary because... I met a group of people who had the same values that I did and were doing some amazing work. And I just was, I enjoyed their company. They were friends. They are friends. They were, they are friends. They are people who want to give back to the community, to our local communities and to the world in a way that's important to me. Um, and, you know, I stay involved in the fraternity because I think that it was the most important thing that I did for myself personally in college. Getting a degree was fine. Um, you know, my degree's in accounting. I've never had an accounting job. But in terms of personal growth and development, I think that I know that Delta Sigma Pi was the most important thing that I did when I was in college. So find an organization or a cause or something to work on that you're passionate about. Don't do it because you want to put it on your resume. Don't do it because, um, you know, somebody tells you you should. Well, you know, sometimes that can be hard. But, but don't just do it. Find something that you're just passionate about, that you're excited to go and, and go to. Um, you're excited to participate in their activities. You're excited to, um, to be there. The people that are the people that are engaged in it when you come away that you feel energized and excited and reinvigorated, especially after a couple of years of, you know, not having a lot of human interaction, you know, one-on-one, <laughs> -on -one. um, you know, find something that, that, that makes you, that you're passionate about. And, you know, that's the same, you know, with your career, if you're doing something that you're passionate about, it's not like, it's not like work. And if you're doing something in your volunteer life that isn't that make that you're passionate about, then it'll energize you and make you excited in a way that that it will make you feel fulfilled. As always, you leave me with a whole bunch of nuggets that are going to stick with me for the next 15 years. So thank you again. Uh, that was absolutely great. And uh, to everybody listening, go find out what annoys you and then work on solving it. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civics Undaunted podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, can you please head on over to podchaser.com and leave a rating or review? These ratings make a big difference and really help get our podcast noticed. So it would be much appreciated if you could go on over there. Civics Undaunted is a production of the Civics Institute, and it is produced and edited by Katie Kacharski. Please visit www.thecivicsinstitute.com to learn more. Thank you again for listening, and have a great day.